Fordham University is sponsoring an online panel titled Taking Responsibility, Jesuit Educational Institutions Confront the Causes and Legacy of Clergy Sexual Abuse. The panel will take place Thursday, April 21st from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Speakers are Karen Terry of John Jay College, Gerard McLone, SJ, and Paul Eli of Georgetown, Donna Freitas, and Maka Black Elk of Red Cloud Indian School. Learn more and register for a Zoom link at fordham.edu slash taking responsibility panel. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dean Danielle Conway. Danielle Conway is Dean and Professor of Law at Penn State Dickinson Law. Dean Conway is a leading voice on creating an anti-racist approach to legal education and has helped those who work in law schools around the country, including at Penn Law, develop better approaches for designing inclusive experiences. I wanted to speak with Dean Daniel Conway because the nomination process, confirmation process has ended for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, and I wanted to talk with her as one Black woman to another about that experience. Just a few weeks ago, we spoke with Dean Angela Nwachi Willig about what to expect for the nomination and the hearings, and now we'll assess what actually happened. And I do get a chance to ask Dean Conway, like, why did Judge Jackson answer the question, what is a woman, the way she did? And we find out Dean Conway's assessment of why the question was asked and why Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson answered it the way she did. We also look at some high points and low points during the hearings from Dean Daniels Conway's perspective. And I think it's pretty special that Dean Conway is joining us just fresh from her visit to a White House event that celebrated the historic bipartisan confirmation of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. We'll get her insights on what happened during the event, what was the mood, the feeling, the experience like. So we'll get that firsthand bird's eye view into that moment. And I think I'm pretty grateful that she was willing to share that with us. And I hope a little bit you could understand from hearing us how two Black women who may not agree on every certain thing feels a sort of sisterhood with Judge Kapanji Brown-Jackson and maybe a bit of that celebratory spirit, even if we don't agree on all positions that the judge may take. You'll get to delve into that with us. So stay with us coming up next on the Glory Purpose podcast. It's Holy Week. In case you haven't heard, this Lent, America Media has been offering daily written Lenten reflections to help our digital subscribers on their journey toward Easter. The authors include Father Matt Malone, Father James Martin, the host of Jesuitical, that's Zach and Ashley, myself, and many more. To get access to these reflections, visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe and become a subscriber today. Stick around. My conversation with Dean Daniel Conway is up next.
Welcome, Dean Conway. I'm so happy to have you. And thank you for joining the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. You know, I have to say I'm a bit jelly, jealous, <laughs> that you were able to participate in the historic celebration at the White House for Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, now right. confirmed to be on the Supreme Court. Tell me what it was like at the White House. Well, I will tell you this. When I was driving from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as you know, I'm the dean at Penn State Dickinson Law. Yep. And so when I was driving this morning, from Carlisle, Pennsylvania to here, the sun was just shining. It was beaming <laughs> and the road was clear and people were getting out of my way. I felt like there was a pathway to get me to the White House. <laughs> and I get here and I meet up with my dean, sister dean colleagues, and mm. we hustle over there to the White House. And there is this energy. Everyone is speaking to everyone. I don't know you. But we're speaking to one another. Yeah. The security guards, the Secret Service, everyone is smiling. Everyone is beaming. And when we finally gained entrance to the ground, they were spectacular. And do you know what caught me, Gloria? What caught you, Dean? The flags. The American flags all over the place. I was awestruck. And you know, I have 27 years in the military. Uh-huh. So I okay. like a good flag, <laughs> but there were so many and the mm-hmm. breeze was blowing them. And it was like today was planned mm-hmm. for centuries. Amen. You had to think about a woman who at a certain time, this country not only couldn't testify or a testimony be considered trustworthy, she wasn't even considered a person. She was property. And now a black woman sits on the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, Judicial power resides with a Black woman. And that's a big paradigm shift, frankly, for the high court as people perceive the high court. That's a big paradigm shift for our country. Yes, it is. And with that, I think we saw, at least in my opinion, what I would consider resistance to that paradigm shift in the way in which before even Judge Katanji was named, just a resistance to the idea of a Black woman being competent to hold that power. And I had that lovely conversation with Dean Angela Onwachi Willig just a few episodes ago, but now we're on the other end of it. The confirmation has happened. And I'd like to get your perspective on some of the maybe high points and maybe low points during the confirmation hearings. Let's start with the low points. (laughs) I think I saw a few, but let me get your opinion first on maybe a couple of low points that you thought happened during the hearing process. Certainly. So here was a low point. I was also, thanks to Senator Casey, Bob Casey, my senator from Pennsylvania, able to attend the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing where they were going to vote Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson out of committee. Mm -hmm. And so the meeting was four hours long. Mm -hmm. And as each senator gave their analysis as to why they would vote or not vote for this nominee, it became clear that on the Republican side, and I'm going to say conservatives because three Republicans ultimately did vote for her. Yeah. But they attempted to make a caricature out of this woman. And it is reminiscent of how Black women have been caricatured throughout American history. And so they were going back 
to a template that they knew very well. And they were defaulting to a position of questioning her very humanity long before they were questioning her actual credentials, Mm. saying things like, well, her parents are nice enough. But the implication of that statement was she was not up to the task Mm. of being an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, that was clear that they were attempting to caricature her. And they did it a second low by pointing, first of all, to conduct of others <laughs> when we're okay. talking about non-production of child pornography, that is conduct of others, okay. where when these defendants, and they would not call them defendants, they kept calling them criminals, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. they wanted to associate her with, with criminal. criminality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying she was the judge. Okay. Sentencing defendants. No, they wanted to connect her person, her being with criminality. But remember what I just said. The criminals who they talked about were defendants and they were defendants charged with non-production of child pornography. That's how that should have been narrated. But they did. What I'm hearing you say is they fell back to old tropes of trying to connect her to criminality and sort of the dog whistling around Blackness and criminality and Black women and criminality and all these kinds of things. Yeah, that would be a terrible low point. And that's something you got to see up close and personal and given your legal background, as well as being a Black woman, you were sensitive to pick up on what they were expressing. Now, for my listeners, let me make it clear We are not trying to say all Republicans this or all Republicans that. She's noting behavior that she saw from some of the Republicans in that particular meeting. That's exactly right. And so that's something for us to think about, particularly as we as a church are dealing with the sin of racism and understanding how pervasive it is, even though people may not see themselves as racist. You know, they'll say, I'm no Bull Connor, but we understand that there are gradations in the sin and how it plays out. That's exactly right. So those were a couple of low points. What about a few high points? Well, let me give you the first high point. Uh I mentioned my senator, Senator Bob Casey. Yes. Senator Bob Casey called me and asked me if I would write a letter as a dean supporting not just Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, but also Ariana Freeman for elevation to the Third Circuit. Mm. And... I asked, after doing the work, I said, I would love to go see the hearing. Mm -hmm. So the high point was his giving me access to the room. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. You see? Yeah. Access. I did the work. And in return, I was able to ask for access. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is powerful. That is powerful to be able to say something and then to be able to see the fruits of what you just contributed to. Yeah, that is powerful. I don't have money. I don't have wealth. Mm -hmm. I have a very good job and I'm very good at my job. Yeah. And in recognition of my volunteerism, I received a ticket of entry to see a historic moment. That's special. Isn't that how? America should be designed to work. 
Yes, it is just not those who are the rich and powerful always get to go everywhere. Yeah, right. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. Now, you know, maybe there's some things you could also help me and my listeners understand who may not have the same deep legal experience that you do. Mm -hmm. A few things that maybe might be perplexing to us. So, for example, when Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked to define a woman. And she says, mm-hmm. I'm not a biologist. To a lot of us, we're like, isn't that easy? Can't you just say a woman is adult human female? But mm-hmm. then I started to remember, you know, in law, things are funny. Even corporations are considered persons. So was there, it, most people would never define a corporation as a person, but yet in the law, if I'm not mistaken, it's considered and treated as a person. So what was behind that? What reasons, are there any legal reasons that someone that's in this process might say, well, I can't because I'm not a biologist. What Are there any legal reasons for that? There are very few legal reasons to ask the question the way Senator Blackburn asked the question. Hmm. She was concerned, again, with narrating a caricature and not necessarily a caricature of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, but a caricature of those who are flexible in their self-determination about who they are and their sexual orientation, their gender. And so what her comment showed was her disdain for the principle of the right to self-determination under international law. And that right says that we get to individually determine our own destiny. This fits right within that principle of destiny. It accounts for what is evolving to be a fluid understanding of gender. And so by narrating this caricature, her attempt is to attack women, transgender women. And I say women first, Mm -hmm. because there are some women who believe in patriarchy. And some women who want access to patriarchy. Now, for patriarchy, let me just, for some of our listeners that may not know what we mean by patriarchy, we're really talking about the unjust domination of women by men. And as Catholics, we reject that. We reject patriarchy for, as that definition, we don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. Just for some people to understand, we would never want one sex to dominate another or unjustly be able to control. I mean, God himself gave us free will. Mm-hmm. And so we know that love comes and is given freely, whereas mm-hmm. patriarchy is about unjust domination. Right. So just let me just put what we're talking about here. In context, thank you for that. And so that was her modus operandi, again, to caricature and to make a statement that would be delivered through the media to her voter base. It Mm. was really not asked to achieve an answer from Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. It was asked in order to generate and whip up Senator Blackburn's voter base. Okay. So you think that was just political theater and there was no point to asking the question. But still, with Judge Jackson saying, I'm not a biologist, is she accounting for the fact that there may be cases where this kind of question comes in and you have to look at the legal facts before you answer? Or Exactly. And then if she did that, she's actually conflicted because oh. she has expressed a determination before there is a real case or controversy. I see. All right. So there's a legal 
a political reason and a legal reason for the question and the answer. That's right. I was kind of thinking of when justices like Amy Coney Barrett mm-hmm. and Kavanaugh in their recent nomination process were saying that Roe is settled law, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to deviate from what's in the law or mm-hmm. you're not going to speak extemporaneously without all the legal facts. Mm-hmm. And they weren't necessarily lambasted as pro-choice or anything like that or pro-abortion, mm-hmm. anything like that. It was just a matter of trying to follow what the stated law is That's right. or being open to what future cases may come. That's right. I get that. I get what you're saying now. I get it. I understand mm-hmm. it. Then the other question I have is, okay, as Catholics, particularly Catholics in the United States, I mean, Catholics worldwide are sensitive to this, but considering the kind of scandals we've had in our church around the sexual Mm -hmm. abuse of children, Mm -hmm. we are highly sensitive when it comes to anything that seems forgiving or lax. I I guess the word isn't forgiving. Providing an excuse Mm -hmm. for pedophilia or defending pedophilia or being unreasonably lax in protecting children's sure. rights and children's vulnerability and children's innocence, really. Mm-hmm. And so to hear charges that Justice Jackson was, I guess the way it's put, is almost like a pedophile protector. Mm-hmm. How do you see it, knowing better probably than myself or anybody else, how the law plays out in terms of these kinds of cases or the cases that people were talking about with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson? Well, I learned a significant amount of information about sentencing from my colleague, Dean Jelani Jefferson Exum. She's an expert on this topic. And what I learned from my colleague, and I'm not going to make her the center of anything I failed to state properly. (laughs) (laughs) So this is all me. This is all me. It's not her. (laughs) She's a good teacher. I may not be the best student. But (laughs) first and foremost, the sentencing guidelines, the Supreme Court has said that those are discretionary. And so to try to paint a, again, a narrative that any judge who uses that discretion as being a facilitator of pedophilia, that is astoundingly negligent. There is no other way to describe how painfully disturbing that connection is, Mm -hmm. especially a judge who has taken the oath of office Mm -hmm. at least four times. Now, I'm not talking about advice and consent of the Senate. I'm talking about the individual who believes in this nation, who is a patriot, who takes an oath, a solemn oath to the nation to defend the Constitution to promote the rule of law, and hear this, to protect the most vulnerable among us. Mm. These are not linear concepts. These are dynamic concepts. And what she was attempting to educate these senators on, and through them, the public, is that there is an important method called proportionality. And that principle of proportionality requires the judge to look at the entire case, not to prejudge, which is what the senators who were spewing this were attempting to do, not to prejudge a defendant, but to look at the case and then develop a sentence that was proportionate 
to the harm the defendant caused. That's called in our rule of law. There's literally a definition of the Mm -hmm. rule of law. And one of the elements of the rule of law says justice means accountability. Mm. And accountability requires this weighing back and forth. Otherwise, everybody would just be put up in front of a firing squad. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I don't want to live in that nation. No, me either. Well, it sounds to me like it's it's saying that judges having the entire context of a case that we don't come to decisions and there has to be some proportionality in the decision. We can't just death penalty everybody or let everybody go scot-free. It has to be in proportion to the specifics of the case and the law at the time. And that is what she was attempting to explain. And then this gets to the point of that discussion, that very shallow discussion of judicial philosophy, right? I was just about to ask you that. Okay, go for it. What does judicial philosophy mean? Is that something y'all teach in law school? Or just what does that mean? Again, I'm a dean, but some of the professors, they teach judicial philosophy. Okay. <laughs> I just I just try to balance the budget. But, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> gotcha. but, Understood. but when we talk about philosophy, it is in the very traditional sense, right? Of creating a theoretical basis for a particular branch of knowledge or experience. It is very much a theoretical term. Now, think about this, right? Judicial philosophy. That might be absolutely incredibly relevant and appropriate to faculty members who are writing articles that are are attempting to see where the law should be going, what the law should be doing, normative conceptions of the law. But a judge with a docket has got a job. Right. And their job is to hear cases uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and render decisions on a particular case or controversy. Okay. So what she was attempting to explain and what they were doing mental gymnastics to berate her about, she was attempting to explain over and over again that her method is to look at a case with fresh eyes anew and consider all of the issues, all of the facts and the applicable law and to spend a lot of time doing it because she writes long opinions to understand how the, the case should be decided. Now, doesn't that fit the definition of philosophy? She's using the theoretical basis of the applicable law, right? Right. And there are reasons for the law. Then she is taking the experience, which means the fact pattern, right? Mm -hmm. And then she's looking at the knowledge that we get from this, meaning once she makes a decision, this is going to go in the bucket of precedent. Okay. So is she, in fact, engaging in judicial philosophy? Yes, hers is yeah. to, I'm looking at every case. Right. Okay. <laughs> and when you say precedent, can you help some of our listeners understand what that means? Sure. And precedent refers to this concept you were hearing a lot of people talking about, judges staying in their lane. That's exactly what it means. Precedent means there are prior cases, judges have rendered decisions, there's a rule that has come out of that decision and a holding. Mm-hmm. And so that serves as a guidepost for cases that come up after that have similar facts, similar law, and it creates certainty that when facts are similar and the law to be applied 
is the same or similar. We should have uniform outcomes. Gotcha. And that allows people to be confident about the application of the rule of law. We'll be back in a minute. Now, I did see that there were some pictures of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson and her daughters. Were her daughters, I'm assuming they were at the White House celebration as well? They were. I'm wondering what the mood was when she said, in one generation, we've gone from segregation to the Supreme Court. Tell me about that experience. Well, I didn't get to see her beautiful daughter's reaction to that, but I was sitting right next to Dean Angela and Wachi Willick. Okay. And I, <laughs> and I was sitting really at the center of a good number of Black women. And it was a good thing I had Kleenex in my purse. (laughs) Everybody just starts crying. (laughs) Yes. It was fabulous. Because we are that generation where our parents had to grapple with the reality of segregation. And again, let's talk about reality, right? And remember I was giving you some elements of the rule of law? Yes. Well, the rule of law also considers realism, what is happening on the ground at the time. Mm. So all of these people came from a generation where their parents were dealing with segregation, were dealing with harm to their bodies because of the color of their skin. Yeah. That's segregation. Yes. Yes. You can't go to the same schools. And the schools are not funded the same. That Okay, thank you. So I think that's a big piece that people miss. Right. That we were segregated and what we received as a part of that segregation was substandard. Correct. And how it undermined our development, our communities, and all those kinds of things. Sometimes people, I think, forget that element of segregation. Exactly. And there was um, also something attached to Blackness as a part of segregation that was teaching society about us, which was not true in relation to our human dignity. And we as Catholics should understand that because we know everybody is made in the image and likeness of God. And with that, they are conferred a dignity Mm -hmm. and a respect that really can't be measured. Our humanity. humanity. Correct. Correct. And so some of my listeners, I can tell you, will be very much like, well, how can you celebrate this person that, you know, you might have these difference of opinion on on such serious issues mm-hmm. like abortion, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming on racism that she mm-hmm. would probably align with me on the evils of it and things like that and why the law could be a tool to help stem the abuses that come with racist practices. But I have to say, as a Black woman, understanding our history, mm-hmm. understanding our shared experience as Black women. And, and I'm not saying all Black women feel like this, but I think a large number of us do. Mm-hmm. We do have a sisterhood yeah. in being Black women. And it's hard to describe for people who haven't walked in my shoes or your shoes, mm-hmm. the obstacles that we have to deal with, the kind of framing of us as less than always and everywhere that we walk in the door. We have to seem to come and reestablish why we can be at the table. Mm -hmm. And for her to have this victory, it feels like a victory for all of us, even if we may disagree on other Mm -hmm. major issues. It's something where all of us feel like we have, at least for myself, feel like we've arrived and we share in that jubilation with her. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that it works the other way around, too, right? So in Shelby County, the voting rights case, you know, John Roberts said, well, you know, 
anti-blackness and racism, we're not suffering from that anymore. So, so yeah. we don't need these voting rights protections. Oh, John. Right. Right. He, <laughs> right. So, Chief Justice Roberts, yeah. So he's doing exactly what people assume Judge Katanji Brown Jackson would do when her record actually demonstrates on discrimination cases, she has ruled for both sides. Right. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's not making pronouncements of everyone, everyone, open your windows. <laughs> Racism is over. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But right, he right. did. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's let's chew on that one. Let's have our friends who are audience members think about that. Yeah. What right as a judge does he have to usurp? the many sociologists who have been trained in this field. What is his right? Okay, that make a good point. I always thought the judges took the information from experts in certain fields to come into their opinion. I will say just as a, as a Catholic, it was is astounding to me that the sin of racism could have evaporated anywhere <laughs> in the United States. But, you know, okay, he said that and he let that bear in how mm-hmm. he thought about a particular case on voting rights. I think that's what Shelby, Tennessee, I think maybe it was. Shelby, Shelby County, County versus Te- Holder, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's something to think about. And Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson will be able to bring her perspective, understanding, and views on whether or not racism could be actually dead in a particular county or not mm-hmm. uh, vis-a-vis a law, which I think would be helpful. And what that would take is not her view. It, when you are in the lawyering process, the lawyer mm-hmm. must bring this evidence. Ah, okay. Right? Yeah. So that's why we have a trial court. Right. (laughs) It's more than just what you individually think. It's more than what Chief Justice Roberts wanted to opine about his experience with or not with the existence of systemic racism. Right, right. Understood. Is this an example of why diversity in legal education matters? It is exactly why. So it matters, number one. Because since 1619 and up through our second founding with the Reconstruction Amendments of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, we have been aspiring to achieve a multicultural, multiracial democracy, right? So if that actually was the intention of those people who voted, and remember, they were white men, voted for the Reconstruction Amendment, if that was their intention, why are we not? explicitly striving for that. Yeah, well. Right? So if that was the intention to have a multicultural, multiracial democracy, when we see, for example, in law school, something I know about, that there are only 5% Black people graduating from law schools, Mm. when we have 12% of the population, when we see that Black people are disproportionately the members of the group that some of those conservatives in that hearing were calling criminals. criminals, Yeah. Right. So they're the air quotes here, criminals. They're not in law school. Right. So if we don't have the full diaspora of people of color in law schools, how can we achieve what was intended by the second founding of those reconstruction amendments? Right. 
Well, I, I have my take just from reading so much history post-Reconstruction is that there was an active violent resistance to Black people as citizens with equal rights under the law. Right. A violent, protracted right. campaign. Use of law, campaign, campaign. Yes, campaign. <laughs> and we saw it through Jim Crow. We saw it through the Civil Rights Act. We see it through suppression of voting rights, which people don't believe is a real thing, which that'll be a whole nother episode to explore. But it's something that, yeah, there's, I could see what you mean by how this diversity and legal education actually is moving us to those reconstruction amendments, this view for our society. Let's see if there's one last thing you maybe wanted to add or you think maybe would be helpful for my listeners to know about this whole process, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, Supreme Court, the law, anti-racism in the law, anything. Yes. Here's what I want your audience to know that Penn State Dickinson Law, this wonderful boutique law school in the middle of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, small town, we are pledging to teach and learn according to an anti-racist platform. And people are coming to our law school. When law school enrollment has been down this cycle by 10%, Penn State Dickinson Law has been up by 10%. Right? Those are national downturns, but we're up. And why are we up? Because people know what we stand for and we follow through on our values and principles to teach and learn according to an anti-racist platform. And I invite you to come check out our website, Dickinson Law, to see what we're doing. Thank you so much. For our Catholics, let me put it to you like this. Some people asking what anti-racist means. For Catholics, we believe it's more, we have to do more than just avoid evil. We have to also do good. And so anti-racism is a more than just avoiding being racist. It's actively promoting the dignity of a person in light of all the races. So it's an active rejection of the evil of racism. That's it. And that's the best way I could describe it. So the Catholic listeners will be able to understand what that means. I know some people attach other meanings to anti-racism, but this is what we as Catholics understand. It's just like avoid evil, but also do good. Avoid action. being racist, but also action. do good. Anti-racist that's action. Right. action. Avoiding, prohibiting, that's right. uh, challenging the evil of racism yeah. as it plays out in our society. Woo, this was a wonderful conversation. I made it. Thank you. Yes, you did. Thank you, Dean Danielle Conway. I, I sincerely appreciate your taking the time out of this day to come and join me on the Glory of Purpose podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.